They told me for years there was no money in podcasting. Well, they were all wrong. This is an ambiguous podcast solutions original podcast. A podcast years in the making. Centered around You're listening to Talking with Tarasha. With your host and founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, Will Tarashuk. Join Will and his guests as they talk about anything and everything under the sun. Now, without further ado, let's do this. Yes, I know I have gray hair. And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Talking with Tarashuk Podcast. My name is Will Tarashuk. It's T.S. and Thomas A-R-A-S-H-U-K. And I am talking about police yet again, not about retirement, about actual people on the force, now retired. My guest is Desmond Ryan. Desmond is a retired police detective from Toronto, Canada. So we're going to talk about can- police over the border as well as here in the States. But he is now a writer. Police, He is a writer. He writes a police procedural series and a light mystery series. He has been a frontline officer, a beat cop, a patrol sergeant, an instructor at the Toronto Police College and detective over a 30-year career. We have a lot to discuss, his books, all that in the works. Desmond, pleasure to meet you, sir. Thanks for being on the hey. podcast from the from Canada. Hey, thanks, Will. Thank you for inviting me. This is wonderful. Thank you. Well, you reached out to me, my friend. You emailed me. <laughs> so at the end of my podcast, when I say email me at willapspodcast.com, you make me go, ooh, that's interesting. You are living proof yet again that I'm a man of my word. So thank you for being here. I do appreciate it. Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So Let's F- go. So you, you got the microphone. Are you... You are you a podcast? Are you you work in content creation? As well? uh, no, actually, actually, I don't. But I do a lot of podcasts, and so I've been told that if I want to sound good, I need to have a microphone. You do. So I dropped a few bucks, very inexpensive, picked myself up a microphone, and here I am. Well, it's it's much better than just using your laptop. Trust me. So I appreciate that as well. So just please introduce yourself. Let's start off there. Who you are, and like, and why why you want to come on the podcast. Well, uh, my name is, as you said, is Desmond Ryan. I'm a retired Toronto police detective from here in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I've been listening to your podcast, thought it was really interesting, thought I might have something to contribute. So as you said, reached out, you reached back, and here we are. Took It took a little bit. I, 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 I'm starting to realize, I should probably slow down my bookings. You know, you reach out to me probably, what, end of January, early February, and I was like, I'll get back to you. I promise you, I'll get back to you. I bookmarked the email, and then as soon as I had an open week, I was like, let's get on this. Let's, so I appreciate the patience, and uh, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. I should probably slow down a little bit. But, okay, let's talk about you being a cop. So how is what's policing like in Canada, and how is it different from what, how it is here in the States, and how did you end up becoming a police officer? Let's start there. How you became a cop and how it's different. Well, um, I became a police officer in the late 80s. That's how old I am. I was 10 at the time. <laughs> um, but um, no, at that time, um, there were not... I, I took a degree in English literature and uh, political science at university, and there wasn't a great call for people with undergrad degrees, or sorry, in... in for jobs in, in that particular discipline and I uh, just kind of thought policing might be fun and I uh, had some neighbors who were police officers who thought it was a great job so thought ah, I'll give it a go give it uh, you know five years see what happens and next thing I know is 30 years later and uh, and it's over it's so it was, of, it was a good run it's kind of funny how that works right you're just like I'm gonna do this for a little bit and you hear all the time like people have to move somewhere we're gonna move to Nashville just for a few years and next thing you know 40 years later three kids out of college and that's just how it works 
Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I mean, when I started, um, I mean, our, well, even now, our gun laws are very different in Canada than mm-hmm. in the states, and I think that's a big, a big difference in our in our crimes, um, and and who's committing them, how they're being committed. And I remember when I started in the '80s, most of the fights were were sort of hand to hand. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. mostly fist fights, and then in the early '90s, we went to knives. And I remember distinctly in Toronto, it was like a a, a switch where people were carrying knives all the time. And now we have people carrying guns, but it's it's not like it is where you are. And again, because our, our laws are really different around that. Right, so now you as, you as an officer, what are, what are you equipped with to protect yourself? Like the, I'm assuming, like here in the States, right, they have baton, they got handcuffs, they might have some kind of spray, and also of course they have their firearm. Now when you're in Canada, do you also have a firearm? Yes. Yeah. When I started, uh, what we had was a Smith and, Smith and Wesson six shooter, which is really inaccurate unless you shoot a lot. Uh, and we had handcuffs and we had, uh, at that time they gave us what was called a, um, a, a, a stick that nobody could actually work very, very well. They switched that over to an expandable baton, which I think most of your people now have. And they switched us over to the Glocks which are a lot easier to to operate, a lot easier to load, all that sort of stuff. And the officers now have the uh, pepper spray, handcuffs, um, they have the Glocks, they have the expandable batons, and they have tasers. That Yeah, I forgot about the taser. Of course, the taser. So I'm glad you said that like the pistol itself is inaccurate because I, I, I say that to anybody who's like never shot a gun. Because, you know, a common, a common argument here in America is why can't a cop just aim for the leg? Right? Why do they have to shoot them in the chest? Well, the answer is because yeah. pistols, particularly, are very inaccurate weapons. If you ever shot a pistol, it's super inaccurate. I only shot one a few times, and I'm a very bad shot. So, and they also they teach you to shoot for the chest because that's where the center of gravity is. It's most likely to hit someone. If you're in a highly populated area, you're aiming for the leg. You know, hit, hits a, hits the asphalt, bounce up, hits someone else. Well, mostly that's what they, they talk scenario. about. Most most of it is it's to stop the threat. Right, that's the language that's used, and so obviously the largest sort of body of, of mass is is the best spot, yes. and you're most likely to hit it, right? Because as you say, I mean, you're again, it's not like a target practice where you're you know you're doing your breathing and you're zenned out and you're totally focused. It's usually a, a split second decision where the officer pulls out their gun. They're in a you know shoot or don't shoot situation, mm-hmm. and so the chance of hitting anything realistically are pretty slim. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they say, you know, center of mass and that's what you aim for. Now, do, do you, do you, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think if U.S. cops even have like assault rifles. I know we have the riot gear. We have the rifles with the, with the rubber bullets. Now, do, do you only have handguns? Or is there other types of, I guess, weaponry for lack of a better term? And like, you know, we, cops here have like the big, the big SUVs that are like bulletproof and that kind of stuff. Yeah, our our uh, in Toronto we call the emergency task force. It's mm-hmm. the same as your SWAT people, right? Okay. They have the big the big trucks and they've got everything, all the toys in there. Um, and there's uh, shotguns that the officers have that I I believe they can take them out patrolling, but they're in the back. Uh, now the the cars have them so that the locks are in the car themselves. Um, so you can take the shotgun out, but again, uh, Toronto's a large urban center. We've got like three million people here, right. so you don't really want to be walking around with a, a shotgun. Yeah, that, like, even if I was one holding the gun, I'd be very uncomfortable. Like no, because like I live 
outside New York City. So I go into New York City for work a few times a week. And in around Times Square, there's the the police, there's a police center like right in Times Square. And every day there's guys out there just holding assault rifles or they're in Port Authority just holding assault rifles just in case, because you know, it's a major hub. Yeah. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Even, even if I was that person, I'd be like, I'd feel uncomfortable. I don't, I don't get that uncomfortable walking by them, but if I was holding the gun, I'd feel uncomfortable because you're immediately a target. Even when you said to protect yourself and others, you are a target. Well, yeah. And that's, I mean, when we first, when I first started in policing, they were just coming out with the, uh, the bulletproof vests mm-hmm. and it was uh, optional to wear it or not. Now, when I was going through training, they just came out with them. And so we wore them. But when we were sent to the divisions, uh, you know, we were seen as kind of like the weenies who were wearing them. And now everybody wears them, the Kevlar vests, and they're really, really hot and they're heavy and they're uncomfortable and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the option is not good because you're a target. Right. Of course. Now, you were in were you in Toronto, like the city proper, or were you a yes. police officer mostly? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was always in Toronto. That's always – I always – city policing is way different from suburban policing, obviously, because there's more people, more crime, more danger. But do you do you know, like, suburban um, – Police officers, I don't know how rural it is outside of Toronto. Is it more suburban or is it a little more spread out? Because I'm trying to get to the point of, like, the community. Like, the relationship of the police officers with the community, it's obviously a lot better with smaller communities because people know each other. But... But in... Yeah, I mean, Toronto, it's... it's You've got, like, the sort of city proper that's yeah. heavily populated. Then you have the suburbs, which is still a part of Toronto. Okay. Um, and then outside of that, you have uh, smaller cities. You have, um, you know, towns and 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 rural areas. And I'm born and raised in Toronto, so I don't know any different. Um, I know community policing uh, in the divisions I worked in worked really well in the downtown core because it was so congested. Mm-hmm. And even though you might not be dealing with the type of community with you know sort of families that we expect, the community uh, would be more of business people, right? So you have business owners and um, shopkeepers and things like that. So we still still had a really strong sense of community. What's what's the training process like? Like how how long like how long does it take for you to become a cop? What are the requirements? Either it's either physical, mental, intellectual as well. Um, well, the physical is um, they they've changed it um, a bit since since I came on. You still have to be able to run, um, and I'm I'm not a runner. But as I've always said, when someone is sort of dangling um, a really cool job and, uh, you know, pension for life in front of you, you can run a mile and a half really fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that kind of looked after that. Um, we used to have to do push-ups and sit-ups. And now they do it where uh, the recruits have to be able to drag things, which makes a little more sense. Because in my entire 30 years of policing, I've never, ever been asked as a job requirement to do push-ups. So I don't know what that was all about. But the whole drag test is just basically to see your, your general you know, ability to, to manage your body and, and pull stuff and things like that. Um, they do a psychological test, and it's, it's basically looking at um you know mostly your overt biases a bit of implied biases just to kind of weed out you know any really obvious uh you know psychopathic uh tendencies things like that and uh the requirement now is that you have to have um academically um 
it is a post, uh, you have to have, I believe, a few credits from a post-secondary school uh, environment. So it used to be just high school. And now you have to have done, uh, you know, a couple of semesters at least at a post-secondary school institution, whether it's a university or a college. Now, Toronto is incredibly multicultural. Um, that we have over 140 different uh, mother tongues spoken in the home. So we really, really like officers with language skills because that's oh, super important. That. Like, is, yeah. is, is French, French Canadian? That's, is that is France, French big in Canada? Is, uh, uh, Toronto, excuse me, as well? It's, it's not as big in Toronto as you would think. Um, I mean, it is our second natural, or national language, rather. But um, in Toronto, you've got people who are speaking Korean, people speaking Mandarin, spe mm -hmm. people speaking Greek, Italian, Russian, you name it, they're speaking it. And... Um, so it becomes problematic when officers attend calls and they can't communicate with people. Right. So that's why we look for people with, with all sorts of different languages. Um, the Toronto police service also really looks for uh, candidates who will reflect the communities. So we want uh, Muslim officers. We want officers who speak Urdu. We want women. We want people of color. We want you know people that look like the people who live here. I understand. I understand. I understand that. Now, I, I, I do want to get back to that, but first, when I think a big problem that officers have in the States is that they don't live in the communities they're policing, right? So you, you have someone who, who could live an, in a expensive community or in a, a more expensive uh, township, and then they're policing, like, a bad part of a major city. Yep. And they get this complex, whether it's mental and they feel it's one way or the other. Does that also exist in Canada when it comes to policing, or is it, is it kind of not mandated, but it's, or it could be mandated, maybe it should be mandated, that if you're going to police a community, you have to actually be a part of the community and live in that community? Well, it's really interesting you brought that up, Will, because that's been an ongoing conversation for a very long time. And it's, it's very complex. Idea... Like, I, don't wanna, I don't make it sound like it's a very simple solution, but please yeah, continue. It, Exactly. Right. Because you're thinking if you're not part of the community, are you vested in it? Mm -hmm. Right. And that sense of, you know, at the end of the day, you go home and, you know, you leave all the problems of the community there and you go off to your little, you know, sort of picket fence house. Um, and it's really easy to sort of um, taint your view of the world based on where you police. Right. But the reality is, um, in, in Toronto, it's a very, very expensive city to live in. Uh, I believe at this time, less than 30% of all officers in Toronto live in the city itself mm. because it's expensive. So expensive. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you know, on the flip side of that as well yeah. is um, that officers, after they, you know, they do their 10-hour shift or 12-hour shift, they have to commute to where they live. Yep which could be another hour, hour and a half, two hours each way. And they don't take the patrol car home. They have to take their own car. That's right. 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 So you're, you're putting on, you know, 70, 80, 90 miles on your own car each way, plus gas, yep. plus time. And you've already done your 12-hour shift. And if you get overtime or if you have court, like if you're working a midnight shift and you have to go to court, then what do you do? Right. So it's, it's a real challenge to get people, you know, engaged, engaged in the city, uh, engaged in the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. 
um, in terms of, you know, if there's overtime or court involved, officers are saying, I don't want overtime. I've, I've been here long enough. I just want to go home. Um, the other issue that we have in Toronto is that officers will come here, work here for a while, realize that they're tired of commuting, you know, two to four hours a day uh, and uh, switch to a police service closer to where they live. And so we lose, we lose the officers. Right. And on the, on the flip side of the argument, um, even like this more probably in towns, but I know in the, in the town I grew up in, some of the cops who did live in the town, I mean, corruption isn't the right word, but they would let things slide. Like, like if they if they if they picked up a high school a group of high schools who were drinking, um, underage, like at the park or whatever, they had to bust something or drunk driving. Well, you know, insert silly crime here. They would let it slide because they know their right. parents or this, that, and the other. And that's that's just a regular standard thing that teenagers go through. But that same principle could be applied to bigger crimes or it's easier for them to be corrupted in those crimes if it's like a money laundering thing within the town it's easy to get someone on the cut when you live in the same town as you so that is the counter argument to the community and i think it's it's a valid one yeah i mean i think uh you know it's more the sort of the letting stuff slide because these are your neighbors exactly exactly so yeah it's hard it's hard to arrest your neighbors exactly and you don't want to be standing in in you know the grocery line uh you know with the person that you you know just had a punch out with the other night and right. you know, threw them in jail. And, yeah. <laughs> right. So, and so that, that's the flip side of that. Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, when it comes to most policing or any job, really, it needs to come down on an individual person by person basis, right? Is this person qualified enough to sit, to work in this police force, in this precinct? If the answer is yes, great. But you got to monitor that too, especially mentally. It's like, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to be a cop and you're in a bad neighborhood, Every now and then, you got to check up on that cop to make sure he doesn't, doesn't form a bias and that can affect his policing. And if you find that bias and you find that effect, you got to move him somewhere else. Well, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, I, I'm 100% behind that because what happens is it's like that slippery slope. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't realize uh, you know, how biased you're getting, how jaded you're getting, how tainted um, because everybody around you is. Right. And we talk about each division having its own personality because it has its own sets of communities. And it's really easy, I think, to say, well, because you work in this division, you know, you're going to be like that. As opposed to saying, no, you know, we need to have a, a, a standard that everybody sort of upholds, which we do in terms of enforcing criminal stuff, but also in terms of the welfare of the officers. Mm-hmm. And I remember once uh, I worked in a really rough division that had um, a lot of street level crime, street level drug dealing, uh, sex trade work. And I knew I was in a bit of trouble when I was at a cocktail party in my personal life. And I was telling somebody about the, uh, this, the street level cost of various sex acts. I thought, Oh, I've been here too long. I need to, this is normal. People don't talk about this kind of stuff. I need to get out. Right. I mean, yeah, as a cop, there's plenty, there's plenty of levels of danger. But I, I am going to circle it back to um, diversity. Because diversity, people love talking about diversity. Everyone loves talking yes. about diversity. But diversity itself can also be a double-edged sword. Now, I, I do agree with you. It is, it is smart to have people from your community represented in the police force. Like you said, people who don't speak Korean, that's going to be a dangerous thing. Or Muslim. That could, could be, that's, if it's a cultural dispute, you want to have someone who understands the culture in there. But that can also be a double-edged sword 
Because if they're not qualified, if you're just hiring someone for a quota, this to, gets to get that diversity or whatever it could be, even if it's extra funding from the state, because they, they have those fundings, you need to make sure they reach the guidelines. Make sure they reach the bar to be an effective police officer. Because at the end of the day, your goal as a cop in the municipality isn't to represent the community. It's to protect the community. When I say represent, I don't mean demographically by statistics. Like, you know, U.S. has 13% black population. The, the police force needs to be 13%. I right. think that's a nightmare. The police officer, if it's, if it's 5%, great. If it's 15%, even better. If it's 20%, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Because at the end of the day, that's how you're going to get the best policing when it comes to training and this, that, and the other. Well, one of the things that um, I know because I'm I'm sitting on a committee that's looking at at some of the hiring practices is really what it's looking at is why aren't the police services getting the types of candidates they want? Mm. Why aren't they that, getting the that, that is that is a phenomenal question that definitely applies to the United States, right? Because it's like. I mean, I am sure that, you know, if you have, you know, like you say, 13% of your population, uh, you know, is, is uh, people of color, mm -hmm. I am sure that there are 40%, 50, 60, you know, 80%, like a ton of people who could, who could easily uh, m meet that representation. For sure. Why aren't they applying? And if they're applying, why aren't they being successful? And as long as the reason that people are not being successful in the selection process is for bona fide reasons, we're fine. Or are there little things that rule people out before they even get there? Right. And one of the things that came up was uh, in this, this um, group that I'm involved in is looking at minimum uh, education levels. And when we say that we're looking for candidates with education levels of in excess of high school uh, to include some post-secondary, not everybody can afford that, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not because they're stupid and it's not because they're unmotivated. It's just because life happens and there's a series of events. And I mean, schooling here is, I'm, I'm sure it is in the States is very expensive mm -hmm. and it's just not on everybody's radar. And so then to say to that candidate, like, sorry, bud, like you would be ideal. You are probably like senior command material, but you didn't, you know, take a year off and go to college. Right. So I would, st my counter to that would be, that's more of a problem of, so like, it's like, yeah, they are qualified, but they can't meet the accommodations because of finances or resources. Let's just use resources, right? Yeah. So the problem, yeah. so the solution, in my opinion, shouldn't be, let's just get people who don't have the resources on the field. Let's work on making sure they can get the resources so they can get exactly. to where they need to be. It's like, you're tackling not you, the metaphorical you is attacking yeah, the yeah. wrong issue. That's a, exactly. big, that's a big thing to say with anything. When it comes to diversity, yep. equity, inclusion, that's a big problem I have with um, affirmative action. It's like, well, don't set these people up for failure either. You know, address the problems yep. that need to be addressed at the root that these communities are struggling and they need help, right? Once they get yep. that help, it's going to be easy for them to get to your goal. Well, yeah, because one of the, I mean, one of the things that we're talking about, and it's just in the talking stages now, is saying to people, okay, you've, you've met all the other requirements, mm -hmm. but you don't have the education component. What if that, uh, you know, policing agency was able to say, you know, within the next five years, we will provide you with the opportunity to get that yes. level of education. Yes. yes. Um, and you will have funding because now you've got a good paying job. Um, so we'll give you five years to play catch up. Mm-hmm. Right. And then after five years, if you don't, then let's revisit that and see what the issue is. But 
I would think that for most people, uh, like, you know, in, in, in trade jobs, right. Where you start and it's like, yeah, you have a, a minimum level and yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. And you've got to achieve these goals and you have to go to additional schooling outside of your job. Um, then I think that would eliminate that, that barrier. I agree. I totally agree. I think in general, not just policing with a lot of things, particularly, I think people need to take that trade route where like, I, let yeah. me ask, let me ask you this. Did you learn more on the street or in the academy? Oh, totally, totally on the street. Of course, right? That's the same with anything. Right, you know, I, I learned more, like I'm a live stream producer. I do podcasting. I learned more about podcasting by myself. I didn't learn anything about podcasting in school because about that time, no one was teaching it. But even my job now as right. a live stream producer, I didn't learn any of that in school. Zero, zero in college. No, I, I got yeah. plenty of benefits other than college, but you learn more on the street. So even sometimes if education is that resource, that's the issue, Maybe even the answer isn't make education more accessible, which it should be for a lot of things, but also make it a little more unnecessary. Learn on the job. You can teach people on the job. They're going to pick it up a lot quicker and a lot cheaper than paying $8,000 in debt to go to college. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know why the stumbling block is you need to have gone to college or university for a few courses. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as you said, I mean, not everybody has the opportunity. Not everybody's inclined. Right. You know, not everybody is academically inclined. But you know, if I was in trouble, I know who I'd want. Right. It might be that person that absolutely crashes and burns at exams and yeah. writing papers. Yeah. That's all. That's a whole conversation on the educational system. But let's 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 keep it to the the police educational system. I want to take it back a little bit right. to training as well. Now, when you're going through the academy, what is the thing they lean on the most when they're trying to teach you? Is it is it more of the physical stuff? Is it more of these are the kind of crimes that are going to go? Is it more of just passing a test like any other type of schooling? Um, where is the focus on the academy? Is it more of here's how, to, here's how to notice a problem in yourself? Like here's how to notice your own mental issues. Is that even addressed at all? I think now they are looking at mental health issues Good. with frontline responders Good. just because um, it's, I mean, it's out of control. Uh, I mean, in the States here, uh, the numbers of officers uh, who are, are, you know, seeing committing suicide as, as, as a viable option, mm-hmm. uh, never mind addiction issues and, you know, Divor- PTSD divorce is, rates. Yeah. You know, PTSD is through the roof. Uh, back in the day, it was just sort of suck it up buttercup. Mm-hmm. And, and then you end up with all these, these, you know, for lack of a better term, broken toys. Right, all, all these people who, who who just can't really function because they are so badly broken. Um, now, I think what they're training officers is to be aware of their own mental health. Uh, they're looking at the tie-ins, and they've been doing this for for a while between physical health, mental health, um, sort of nutrition, that whole you know, getting enough sleep, all of that stuff. Um, I mean, I know in in policing. Uh, you know, it's still sort of a badge of courage of, you know, I haven't slept for days and it's like, well, that's, that's That's great. So how's your decision? Yeah. How's your decision-making process? Yeah. You shouldn't be Um, on the street. Like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be showing up to an, to an armed robbery. Like you should be, you should hit the sack. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and unfortunately it's like, well, the, the flip side is that, well, we, we don't have enough people, so we need people to keep working and you don't get to pick and choose your calls and all that sort of stuff. So um, but just for the officers to sort of say, like, if there's a life past policing, there's a life outside of policing, um, you know, yeah, this is, uh, well, as as my, um, one of my training sergeants said, policing is, um, uh, uh, is, is like, like no other mistress, 
right? It's mm. just like, cause it, it's 24 hours a day. It's nonstop. It's, it, it can be always exciting if you want it to be. I mean, you, you can hang around the station all the time and it's, it's exciting. Right? But say, no, it's, it's not a seductive mistress. Don't do that. Go home, get some real friends outside of policing, get a hobby, you know, get a dog. I don't know, do something mm-hmm. and get some sleep. And I think, I think it's the part of that because after doing my podcast with Chris Engelbert on police retirement and pension funds and all like all like you know the, the finances behind policing, um, I think that needs to be trained in the academy as well. Like, listen, here's how much your salary is, right? Let's say it's you start out seventy grand American, right? Here, yeah. here is how you could allocate that money in these police retirement plans, so you can have that life outside of policing. You can have the money and the budget to work on your mental health. Because, yeah, money solves a lot of problems, but budgeting your money you already have will solve even more problems a lot faster. Well, that's it exactly, right? You get people who um, all of a sudden are making good coin. Yeah. You know, policing, you get, you know, as as a a fourth class constant. Yeah, (laughs) right, exactly. And they're men. Yeah, right. It's like, you know, you're, all of a sudden you're making a lot of money and, yeah. and you've got this like kind of cool job. And so you see officers just spending like all kinds of money on all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And then they're broke and in debt and on and on and on. But I, I think this is sort of an a, a epidemic everywhere to sit down with people and say, like, budget your money. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you're budgeting when you budget your money, you're budgeting your life. Right. And, and if you, if you don't, then you're never going to have enough money. And once you get behind that eight ball, right. You never get out. Yeah. It's really hard to get out of debt. Like yeah. it's, it is very, very, very hard to get out of debt. Someone who has debt, student loan debt, it's very hard to get out of, um, as much yeah. as, as much as our government's trying, but you know, all that, all that takes resources, all that yes. takes resources. And here's whenever someone mentions money funding or defunding the police, my first, we're saying the taxes, anything that involves money, the first question you have to ask yourself is how much money do we currently have? And the second question is, where is it going? And the third question yeah. is, how can it be reallocated? After that, you ask about more funding or less funding. So right. let me, I guess let me ask you then, where do you stand on the fund or defund the police, either for American or Canadian police? I think there's a sweet spot between looking at the that. funds yep. And I mean, not just saying, well, like, okay, you know, as of tomorrow, everybody goes home, we're done with police, but to say, what are the jobs that are specific to police officers that only police officers can do? Let's get them doing those jobs. Mm-hmm. What jobs can be better done by other agencies mm-hmm. who are already getting funding or who could use a little extra funding that's not near as much money as we're putting towards policing to, to resolve the same issues. Um, like for example, mental health issues. Um, you know, police officers get mental health training, um, but police officers are not mental health workers. Police officers are not psychiatrists. They're not psychologists. They're not public health nurses. They're not any of those things. And I'm sure it's the same where you are, but you know, here in Canada, uh, our public health is is underfunded. Our street level nursing is is radically underfunded. Um, and to say, okay, well, instead of having a police officer who chose to be a police officer rather than a public health nurse because they don't really want to be a public health nurse, why don't we take some of that money and put it towards public health? 
And so the times where police officers get called to those types of calls is where there is more of a police slash enforcement apprehension element involved, as opposed to a counseling uh, component uh, and a long-term solution component, which comes from our social services. I'm with you 100%. Um, At least I I was, you know, funding more mental health, 1,000% with you there. Now, when you say the funding should come from the police, why? Well, I'm saying the money that is allocated towards the police budget. Okay. Um, like, for example, in Toronto now, I believe the police budget is over $1 billion. It's mm-hmm. a lot of money. So if they looked at how much of that money is, is spent in, say, for example, public health type initiatives, Mm -hmm. uh, responding to public health, all of that, say, okay, let's take a little chunk of that and give it to the agencies that are already doing that kind of work. So you you want to rearrange funds within the overall big police budget? Take the money, some of the money from the police budgets Uh and take it out and put it into the public health budgets. Okay, but that that is an under a different umbrella completely. So it's like you take it from box A to box B, you're not rearranging box A. So yeah, Yeah. that, I, I... I understand that argument, but my thing is we need to fund mental health, right? That is, yes, that, is something we, that is something we can both agree on. Absolutely. But why does the money to fund it need to come from the police? Why can't it come from elsewhere? Like, why can't it come from taxation, right? Or any, well, any, like, if, like it, why, why the police? Why not the military? If in the U.S., I would say come from the military. Why the police? Because the police could use that, mon- that funding for other things to help the police mental health or the police training. Like, why does it need to come from the police? I think that is, I think that's a big disconnect in this conversation is why, is I, well, it, why, why should it come from the police, the police budget? Well, I'm saying just for, you know, argument's sake, right. let's say $10 million is spent annually and it's like way more than that, but $10 million is spent annually uh, for police officers um, attending to uh, low level mental health calls mm-hmm. annually. Why don't we then say we're going to take that $10 million and give it to an organization so they can hire like way more staff mm-hmm. so th- those calls never get to the police? Where would they go then? Where would, where would who go? Where, where, would the call, where, where would the calls go and who would show up? Uh, they, then they would go to the mental health people. Okay. So instead of the police. So they don't, they never go to the police. So as, as you say, mental health, uh, police officers aren't mental health workers. Mental health workers on cops, right? Right. So that's that's the that's that's the flip. So yeah, I, I think, if I'm and, a mental health worker, my mother was a mental health worker. She was a, she was she worked with very violent people in like a mental hospital. So her, she had to do with people who over, uh, uh, not overdosing. Um, the other the opposite of overdosing on heroin withdrawals, withdrawals withdrawal, on yeah. heroin, and like in a hospital. And there were guards in the hospital. There was something yep. she couldn't do without a guard because it was dangerous. So while a cop is yep. used to danger, they're not used to mental health. Mental health is used to mental health. They're not used to danger. So right. like, I, I, I don't think you should send a mental health worker to a police where someone is super disturbed and they have a gun oh, no. or a no, knife, no. right? But you, no, no. you need to apprehend them and then you send them to the mental health worker in an opportunity for mental health workers to actually do their job. Yeah, right? agreed. agreed. And if, yeah, if, I, I miss, if I misrepresent your point, I apologize, but that's it's a general argument there. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't say, you know, like mental health workers, off you go. Right. Um, because they're, but what I, what I would suggest is that uh, if we can deal with mental health issues mm-hmm. uh, more at a grassroots level before they escalate, mm-hmm. 
we may have less calls to service because you're always going to have mental health calls to service. Of course. course. Same with somebody who is, is, you know, having a psychotic episode, something like that. Um, And, but there's a lot of times where police are involved in things that really aren't policing issues Mm -hmm. or, you know, people are just not, not managing. They're not coping. They're not a danger to themselves. They're not a danger to anybody else. They just need somebody to talk to. So why should the budget to fix those problems come from the police when it shouldn't have anything to do with them in the first place? Well, that's it, right? It shouldn't have anything to do with them in the first place. Right. But the solution, but but you want to fund the solution through the police budget. No, no. Uh, Sorry. Because what I'm looking at is the budget's there. Mm Leave the budget, but somewhere you have to come up with money to fund these other things. Right. So where are they going to get this money from? Right. And you're, you're saying you know, the overall police budget. If if they're if they're taking responsibilities away from the police, have then maybe they okay. can take some of the money. I, I, no, that's uh, some that's of it out point. of it. Okay. That that's what I was trying to say. Okay, gotcha. See, that that was a big disconnect for me. Like you know, I understand. Like, no, after after. I don't know which example I want to pick in the states. Pick one, right? After that happened with the defund the police movement, the idea was this money should come from the police, and I just never understood that. Like, I, yeah, mental health is a problem, but what does that have to do with the police? But you, you're, you're, in your response is it takes the burden off of the police, levy the financial burden as as like a as the even it yes, out. yeah, yeah. That that is the best argument I have heard for why the money should come from the police. So. Thank you. All right, I'll I, take I, it. I'll I, take I, it. I, I appreciate that because that actually that actually helps. Now, whether I can disagree or agree with you, I understand. Right? I don't need to agree with you. I just need to understand. So that was perfect. Because um, I, I do agree. It's it's a big problem. Like I don't even think traffic cops should be a thing. Right? If I get pulled over, why is it a cop with a gun? Right? I got, I don't understand. I can have a gun in the car, but why is the same municipality that handles traffic cops not the same cop per se, but they also handle um, high speed chases on, on motor, with motor vehicles. It just doesn't, I think doesn't make sense. I think that the thing is a traffic stop is actually, I would, I would suggest is one of the most dangerous calls a police officer goes on. It's probably because it's the most frequent. No, they have no information. Mm. None. Mm. Right. You get a call for a disturbance. Mm-hmm. The information you have might not be correct. But it's usually, you know, uh, you know, say for a domestic, uh, say a man, a woman, they've been arguing, they've been drinking, you've been called there 15 times before, and you know, they have weapons in the house and children. You got a lot of information to go on there. Mm. Traffic stop, you see someone, you know, blow through a stop sign. You got nothing. All you know is that there's somebody in a car, right? Why did they blow through the stop sign? Uh, you know, are they rushing to get to the hospital for some reason? Are they drunk? Are they, uh, you know, uh, running away from something? What do they have in the car? Who do they have in the car? Right. So that is actually a like super dangerous, dangerous call. It's just pulling a car over. That's where the, that's where the shit gets real. Yeah. Because you don't, you have no idea. And even if the car is registered to, uh, you know, some will, random will, person. Will Tarashuk, you don't know that Will Tarashuk is behind the wheel. And you know, right. and you could have like no criminal record whatsoever and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And then I find out, oh, it's not actually Will behind the wheel. And the car's been stolen. Actually, you know, Will's been thrown in the back of the trunk. Mm-hmm. And this is really going bad, really. Like, this is horrible. And I'm here by myself um, in the middle of the night by the side of the road with some crazy guy with Will in the trunk. Right. 
that's another that's, that's another phenomenal point right that's that's why traffic stops have um have uniform officers and the traffic stop can turn into just a you know your little uh you know checking to make sure you've got your insurance papers and all that stuff and then the car just books it and takes off right and you find out yeah it's a stolen car mm-hmm. you know will's in the trunk this guy's like you know shot five other people and this is a bad day at the office for the cop. Yeah. This, this is going to sound a little weird, but I think we need to have more empathy for police officers. Now, I know that could be a little weird to say because when you turn on the news, you only hear bad things about the police. And don't get me wrong, the police do a lot of bad things that deserve to be called out. And a lot of people need to go to jail. More people need to go to jail. But in order to have change, you have to have empathy for anything. And cops are a very, very tough job. It's a very, very hard job, for, especially for the reason you just mentioned, because traffic cops are probably all the most frequent, and as you said, they're the most dangerous because there's no information. So in order for that to happen, you need to have empathy, and I think a big thing that helps is body cameras. Now, I'm sure there's clips of me, my, even my stupid wrestling podcast from like seven years ago, this me and Ricky off on, on a rant talking about how I don't like body cameras on cops, but... I think it's. I think it has its problems, but overall, I think it's been wonders and done more harm. I mean, sorry, more, more good than harm because it protects everybody involved in the yeah. situation and it keeps everybody on their guard. Now, I I do think it makes a cop's job harder because they they have Big Brother watching them. And it is hard because it's it makes a stressful situation a little more stressful. But it's it's the most fair thing that can happen at any situation. Body cam footage. What what are your thoughts on the body cam? Uh, I hundred percent agree. And I mean, I, when I started policing, like we didn't have cell phones, anything right. like that, right? So it was like the wild west, um, and we didn't even have uh, cameras in the booking halls. And then I remember they brought cameras in the booking halls, and everybody thought like, oh man, that's the end of policing as we know it. Um, and it, and it wasn't, and, you know, then people had cell phones and individual cell phones and, uh, with all the security cameras and things. And I remember like as a a parading sergeant saying to my officers, assume you're being filmed all the time, Mm -hmm. whether it's just by somebody's home security camera that they're never, ever going to watch, or you go to some function and, you know, right away, everybody's got their cell phones out, right? You pull a car over, people stop and they got their cell phones out. So, you know, look good and sound good, right? So I think that uh, the body cam is just the next step up from that. And again, I remember when they started with the body cams and our association, which is kind of like the union, we're saying, no, 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 that's, you can't do that. But it's great because it, it shows everything, I mean, they've got them in the cars. So if you know, you've got somebody in the car who makes allegations, if it's a, a person who's in custody, it's right there on the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with the body camera; everything is all is filmed. Uh, it's the audio is on, and really, I think in this day and age, with this generation of of officers, they're so used to being filmed all the time, they probably don't even notice. You know I, what? It's, they probably don't, because that brings me to my next point. Hey, man, crooked cop gonna crooked, right? They, they'll it. still find a way. They don't care, and right? they don't care because they they know they can some still sometimes get away with it. Like I saw a video not too long ago. This guy, this cop, pulled someone over. Like they say, smelled something in the car, and on their body cam footage, they were seen placing the drugs in the car. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. well, <laughs> idiot, yeah. you're being recorded. 
Exactly. But, but even even right? with the body cam footage, you know, they, they they sometimes turn it off. They say, "Oh, it malfunctions." So, crooked cop gonna crook it. So, but even well, but it, it, I think I mean, it reduces it, but it's. They're going to find a way, man. It happens. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that we look at is if an officer said, well, I, I didn't turn the camera on. I right. mean, when they first started the the program, it's like, okay, well, that's a training issue. Yep. Now everybody's been trained, right? So don't be telling me that. Um, you know, the, the camera malfunctioned. Did it? Great. Let's take it, uh, you know, we'll take it to the let's tech people and let's get it fixed, right? Um, yeah. I mean, you're, crooked's going to crooked. But you know, and you're 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 always going to have that you know bad seed somewhere. Right. But this makes it a lot harder, and I think it makes it a lot better for the officers who um, have been accused of things. Right? They say like, "No, here's here's the footage right yep. here. Boom, it works, we're done." It works both ways. It does. Yeah, work and both I think uh, it's much better. Um, and just. Um, I mean, never mind for discipline reasons, just for functionality, for doing statements, you know, like you've got your camera on, the person can just start telling you what happened mm-hmm. right before. Uh, I mean, they still write it down in the memo box, but you have this like tiny little pad that you're holding in your your hand and this crappy little pen that doesn't work when it's wet or cold or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, trying to get a, a verbatim statement from a, a victim or a witness. It's on the body cam. It's great. Right. Now, this, is a, this is a technical question, but when they have the body cams, and it's being it's being recorded. Where is it stored? Like the actual like, because if they have like a, the camera on them, do they have them? Like, what's the storage capacity? Where is it stored? Is it actually from the camera fed to the station and it's stored there? Because if you if you're on the patrol and you know you have a little hard a little camera and they just ma- sometimes it can max out, right? I know I know how big video files can get. This one's going to be like twelve gigabytes, right? So how does right. how does the actual storage and actual recording of the body cam actually work do you know i don't actually know that but i know that it's um it we have never had a body cam that's that's maxed out yet all right so i i think it just gets goes right directly to a, a main sort of main board and gets stored right away i think maybe they have something like that in the car like I, I'm just trying to yeah, think, think how, like as as a production guy, I'm trying to think how they would do it. Because like, if it's like a even if it's like a terabyte hard drive, that's still pretty big. You can kind of you can kind of see mine over here in my computer if you're watching. Well, if you you can see it on your video, but they're not small. So that's that's just, that's something that came to the top of my mind. But let's 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 keep the crooked gonna crooked. Let's keep the crooked cops. How does a cop become crooked? How does a cop get on the beat and just? Become a bad cop. Now, there's a little bit of a stereotype in the States that if you were just bad at high school, you didn't get good grades, you do one of two things. You go to the military, you become a cop. And it's just they were the troublemakers in general. So is it more of people entering the force or is it more of once they join the force to kind of turn to the dark side? Like like like, like training day, the movie training day. So what what makes a good cop go bad or what makes a bad cop to begin with? Well, if I if I knew the answer to that, I'd be making a zillion dollars, uh, you know, talking to police agencies (laughs) great answer um so leave that with me and i'll think about it and uh when i'm a zillionaire i'll uh, but i i think that um mostly i think it's it's kind of turning to the dark side Mm. um most most of the i mean 
the selection process, it's not perfect. You're always going to get problems. Um, but again, like, like we have a, a year long probation here. So if there's problems with somebody, uh, we look at, it, is it a training issue? Is it a discipline issue? Is it a you issue? What's the problem? Um, a lot of times that sort of sorts itself out through a variety of different, different ways. Um, but I think, you know, uh, one of the things that we see here is, you know, we we're talking about earlier, um, you know, individual officers get themselves in a jackpot. They get into some debt situations. Uh, they develop some addiction issues. Um, Gambling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, substance abuse issues. Um, you know, which, uh, you know, I mean, I'm off the top of my head, I'm thinking like the, uh, the oxy issue with, with pain, painkillers, right. You have an on-duty car oh, yeah. accident, per- you know, you get, you, yep. you get you know, some painkillers and like life is great. And then your prescription runs out and you know the the individuals addicted and uh you know are they going to reach out for help or not or you know are they going to start buying on the street then you know does it get to be a case of uh you know criminals got something on them and then they have to kind of go to the dark side it just it gets to be a vicious sort of thing and and this is where again like mental health uh putting the supports in place checking in to make sure officers are okay um looking at that, that sort of, you know, 360 degree wellness check of, you know, like, yeah, how are your finances? You know, it's, it's pretty hard to go to work every day when you're, you know, your, your credit card is just maxed out and it's never, ever, ever going to get better. Right. And then you, you go to a a break and enter at somebody's home. They're not home. You're looking around and you're thinking like, wow, you know, one of those, uh, you know, those, those rare candlesticks or something is probably worth, I don't know how much money, you know, um, and, and we, and we've had cases right, where people, um, I remember years ago, there was, um, an officer who was rolling, um, uh, drunks, like stealing the money from, from people who are passed out drunk and they did a sting operation and they caught him. Right. And you're going like, like, really? Like, dude, really? But you know, like, what was his issue? What, why did he need to get that, yeah. you know, 30 bucks or whatever, 20 bucks that was in that, that drunk's pocket. I mean, a problem we have here in the States, I just heard about this the other day, um, gangs, po- police gangs, like in California specifically, I don't know if it's, might be Hollywood or like LA, I think no, it's LA, the LA, the LA police department has a big problem with police gangs, which is just like, okay, now we're going full circle, you're supposed to stop the gangs, like you're forming gangs. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's a, it's a massive problem, I don't even know how you fix that, well, first of all, you fire them, right? Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. of them immediately. Fire. If you're, if you're affiliated with the gang, you you go to jail the people you, the other gangs in jail and have fun in there. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's crazy. It's nuts. Um, but I want to ask you, I want to play a little game here. I want to know a Canadian's perspective on US policing and the US government and how we like because you think of the federal government, the FBI, the, the, the intelligence agencies, they are a form of police. Uh, even yes. the military, the military's form of world police, for better or mostly for worse. So I right. want to know how you, as a Canadian, view the U.S. police force, and I'll flip turn on flip the tables on you and <laughs> see how I how I think of Canada's police force. And I have a specific example. So please burn burn my country to the ground. I I I, I beg you. No, you know what? I mean, I think that it's like everything that it's set up with great intentions mm-hmm. and. And these things seem to be cyclical where you, you've got like a really, uh, you know, a good group of people who are, are dominating and the, the organizations and things are going really well. And then, you know, you, they, they kind of 
lighten up and and then they get some little bit of corruption in there whether it's moral corruption ethical corruption financial corruption um then it becomes problematic and then there's a crisis and then it turns itself around again um and it's unfortunate when uh sort of multiple levels of of law enforcement are in the same cycle unless they're at their peak right so that's that's uh that can be problematic but i think by and large i mean I don't, I, there's easier way to, ways to be a criminal than to be a cop, right? <laughs> I, I don't think that's an entry, a gateway to criminality. And so sure, I think sure. that, it, I mean, if you look at the number of, of people who are involved in law enforcement, whether it's as sworn members or as, as civilian members, the sheer numbers versus the numbers of, of corrupt officers that it's still run by you know people with really good hearts who are doing a really really good job but the problem is you get somebody who does something phenomenally stupid and it taints everybody's view and it gets all the attention yeah yeah right yeah, as cop, opposed to the officers a day isn't a good selling story in a news no or you know cop goes to work every day for you know 30 years or crossing happens. guard yeah. you know crossing guard does the same crossing gets no complaints and uh, you know, the people love her. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to, it's like, well, that's, there's two minutes of our news feed that we don't want to fill. Um, right. As opposed to you get a, an officer or a group of officers and, and I think rightly so, then you got to start looking and say, okay, if these officers were able to become this corrupt, how did that happen? And how do we make sure that there isn't a gateway to that kind of corruption for people who, who are so inclined? Okay, your turn. My turn. Well, actually, I'm going to respond to that one first. Uh, I think there's, to build off your point, there's also a societal expectation that needs to be adjusted. Right? And that, what George Floyd was terrible, and that guy deserved to be in prison yes. the rest of his life. Absolutely. As, as he will be. However, yep. the, the response to it didn't help. You know, you can have your protests. The protests were, I don't want to say the term mostly peaceful, but they, were, they started peaceful. I'll give him that. They started peaceful, and they turned very violent. They turned in the riots. Now... How that happens and why that happens, you know, that story for another day. But when you're going out of protest and the cops are there as they should be there to make sure nothing happens and you're in their face, you're screaming, you have a signs in their face, you're giving the middle finger, you're cursing at them, you're screaming at them, and they're just, they're just saying they're taking it, that doesn't help either. And, you know, saying we need to fund you, throw you, all, throw you all this and that, calling them racist, this, that, and the other, that doesn't help either. So there is some responsibility from everyday citizens, both U.S. and Canadian, because you guys have some problems up there as well. And again, when I get to my yes, we do. on how to fix that issue. Now, you can, yes, you can say the cops started it, but you're not helping anything to finish it. And no one's really <laughs> interested. No one's interested in finishing it. They just, they'd rather be fighting. Some people want to watch the world burn. Um, well, I, sorry. Go ahead. Please. No, I, I think that also it's, it's, you know, it's as we always say, you're not going to get justice by the side of the road. Right. Right. And so I think the the role of the protest is really important. Um, so, you know, the, you know, the officers are there to keep the peace and, you know, people are in their face, people are yelling, people are screaming, they're angry. That's fine. That's there. That's done. Then the real work begins right. of how do we mend this? Where do we begin? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause otherwise you're just going to have two factions on the street. You know, one group's going to stand there 
one group's going to get yelled at yeah. and the other group is going to, you know, have enough of that. And it's tear gas is going to go and then yep. it's going to just be Double a riot. And it's going to be horrible. Yep. yep. This is burned down. I mean, for Christ's sake, they burnt down the public. Yep. It's Seattle. They burnt down a police precinct and they made it their own city. Within three days, people were dead and the EMTs couldn't get in. So yeah, yeah not, not much better. Not The result isn't much better. Um, okay. No. You guys had the the trucker pro the trucker protest. That's like yes, we did. That is like your biggest protest I think Canada's probably ever seen. Um, probably, probably. Yeah. You know, I'm not Canadian. I don't know Canadian history, but I'm gonna let's just for the sake of argument, at least in the past few decades, the biggest thing yes. I've ever seen. Now they were protesting to catch people up. They were protesting the vaccine mandates, not vaccines themselves, the mandates. Yes. Now they they what they did is they took their trucks. They went to the capital city. And they pretty much just put a halt to everything. Now, yes. that was a peaceful protest. That was the definition of a peaceful protest. Amazing how there was no violence. Now, another thing uh, that kind of goes to the wayside here in the States, or maybe even up there in Canada, a lot of the truckers were vaccinated. A lot of them were vaccinated. They just didn't like the mandates, the government overreach. So what did Trudeau do? I used to like Trudeau. He froze their bank accounts. And the bank accounts of their families. I'm on a peaceful protest. That to me is more disgusting than anything that happened in the United States protest. That is true authoritarianism. That is almost true fascism. Because we can even say it is fascism because they were getting a lot of pressure from the Biden administration because their protest caused us economic problems. So you know Biden, the government, is making phone calls saying, end this now. It's about money. So... What's your take as a cop from that well, protest I, and the government response? I think the issue there is we weren't talking just, you know, like your average Joe, the truck driver who who took his truck and drove, you know, from British Columbia, like all the way to Ottawa, which is like a, I don't know, 10 day drive. It's, you know, and, and camped out. The issue there, I understand, was that the money was coming from other places as opposed to like just Joe average, just protesting, you know, doing his thing. Um, and so this went on and on and they just like, they locked down the city and eventually it's like, okay, we've got to get rid of this. Cause it was gaining far too much momentum, like the impact on, on the economies. Like you say, it wasn't just Ottawa. It was, you know, the rest of the country, our supply chains, and then, you know, down to the States, uh, you know, it was just, causing a lot of trouble that, that was and the, so that was the point that was the point of the yeah, protest yeah right but the, the only way and again if it was just you know joe the truck driver whose personal views were that this is a bad thing that's one thing but i don't know about you but i i wouldn't be able to you know keep my truck running 24 hours a day it's a lot of gas mm -hmm. uh and keep myself warm because ottawa is pretty cold in the winter time mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff for any great length of time so the money was coming from somewhere else. Um, so right. what they're saying so, is, so like, like Americans, for example, are giving to like GoFundMe's, right? And the government halted yeah. those, right? Which yeah. if the company wants to make a decision, that's a different thing. But I'm saying though, like the actual bank accounts, like I, I bank with TD Bank. The government yeah. throws their accounts. That's not, yeah. not really the money coming in, the money they already have. So like yeah. if they're at the protest and their, their wife wants to go buy a soda at 7-Eleven, their bank account's frozen. You don't think that's a huge government overreach for a peaceful protest? I it stopped. It's interesting because the perception kind of like for the people in Ottawa was not perceived as peaceful at all. Oh, the like it wasn't honk, like riots horns, and honking horns. 
Well, if, they, if they're doing it for, you know, three weeks. Right. Straight, it's, it's, it's annoying. Right? It's definitely you annoying. Know, um, and like people couldn't leave their houses. Uh, they couldn't get out. They couldn't. Um, it, it was a lot more inconvenient. No, they weren't burning stuff down. Right. But, you know, like, I don't know, when you're setting up hot tubs and things like that, it, it's it's a little bit tubs. different from. <laughs> they yeah, had they hot did. tubs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and trying to weigh sort of uh, the community safety, community standards. Uh, some of the things that came up were, you know, had this been uh, other communities having protests, how long would it last before the police would have shut them down? Right. You know, but who the, probably who, the, who are the police to shut down a peaceful protest? Like I know, I don't, I don't can't Canadian protest rights might be a little different than here in the states, but no, protesting yeah. is supposed to be protected under our First Amendment. I know you guys are have a little yeah. bit, a little bit yeah. different. Yeah, as long as it's peaceful, from that's fine. Pers- from an from American perspective, that is the definition of what a protest should be. That is the correct way to protest. Now you, we could d- debate why they're yeah. protesting, but that's not the point. The point is this was a peaceful, by definition, protest. This was the correct way to protest. Whether you agree with what they're protesting or not, you don't have to agree with what they're protesting. You got to agree, though, no. how they're protesting is the correct way to do it. For the most, oh, generally. I'm sure you can find yeah. a few examples here and there. And you had the government calling them racist and deplorables, which they weren't. They're just truck drivers. They're just working people, average people. Sure, so there's some weird. Well, well, it turns out that a lot of them were associated with white supremacist organizations. So again, it wasn't like Joe, you know, Joe, the construction drivers and his truck. Um, there was a lot of uh, layers of criminality, I believe, beneath the surface. Okay. And and so it, that's what changed the dynamic so a for, bit. For, for the sake of argument, you know, I've heard that's not true. That, but for the sake of argument, that's true. They also have a right to protest. Yeah. So you, you, you don't have to agree with like, – I, I would, I would, if, if that's true, yeah, their ideas are deplorable completely. But they still have a right to protest. You know, the, the, the Nazis marched on Washington as a peaceful protest. It's, yeah, fuck them. But they have a right to do that. Right. Trudeau, man, I, it's, it's really it's concerning because that's so close to our borders that kind of – okay, they can just freeze your money. That's terrifying. Like if not, no, no, not, 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 they're not going to protest ever again. So what, what, what would have been the right way to protest then? If not that, if not that, what would have been the right way to protest? I think the protest was going fine. It, it should have been shut down sooner. Um, or maybe the government just because... just lifted their mandates then. Right, this comes down to the government. Like you, if, in my opinion, you should be more mad at the government than the people protesting. The government needs to, if the government needs to fix it, then the government needs to take action, not just shut it down, just change their policies. If it's that much of an economic problem, then maybe you think their policies. They're in power. They're in power. They're the ones right. in control. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> 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 All right, I'll let you off the hook. I'll let you off the hook. Let's talk, let's, Thank let's, you. Let, let's talk, let's talk with the fair and impartial policing program. Cause this, this I think um, is, is a big, is a big way forward. I appreciate you having that conversation with me, by the way. Um, so, the Fair and Impartial Policing Program, you were, you were heavily involved in this. So please explain what it is, what the point is, what it does, and what the goal is and what it wants to do. Okay, so what happened was, uh, oh, I mean, about eight or nine years ago, the Toronto Police Service was looking at ways to uh, talk to uh, you know, the entire service about bias, mm-hmm. about implicit, explicit bias, um, and... 
uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, sort of started this was looking at, uh, you know, st stats were taking about who gets pulled over. Um, you know, is there a certain demographic? Is there, um, you know, a, a, you know, do more men get more pulled over, more people of color? Uh, is there an age group? Um, and why is that? And likewise, um, we have a, uh, used to have a, a practice here where we would, uh, it, it became known as carding where someone could be you know, randomly stopped. They didn't have to talk to police, but they could be asked, you know, their name, their address, all that sort of stuff, why they were in the area. Uh, and that information would be cataloged. Mm -hmm. And so um, it became apparent that again, a different a, a demographic was being uh, stopped more often than not uh, for non-criminal matters and looking at why that was and in what neighborhoods. And the concern that uh, came out of that was that um, the uh, neighborhoods that were being targeted were uh, low-income neighborhoods and the um, people who were getting stopped more often than not uh, were young black men. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had to then look at why is that happening? Because these are for non-criminal offenses or just randomly being stopped. And is it just a case of there are more young black men walking around than, you know, young white women or what's going on? And from that, we then started to look at, um, is there a bias when police officers are looking at uh, criminal activity? So in other words, is there a, an implicit profiling going on where you think, uh, you know, two people walking down the street, which one uh, is likely to be the criminal? And so uh, the Toronto Police Service uh, purchased a program from the states called the Fair and Impartial Policing Program. And what they looked at was how uh, the assumption is, and I agree with it, is that we all have biases. Some of are explicit, which is stuff we can work with, um, and some is implicit. And so you can say, well, it's an implicit bias. How do I even know I have it? And if I don't know I have it, then how can I manage it? What's, what's the difference? Um, Explain the difference between explicit and implicit. Explicit is, you know, you have a bias. Okay. Um, I mean, the example I use is, um, you know, I know I would prefer to eat um, potato chips over paper clips. If you put a bowl of potato chips in front of me, a bowl of paper clips, I'm going to yeah. choose the potato chips every single time. I'm good with that. I own it. I, I will argue that that's the right thing to do. I believe in it. Right. So that's an explicit bias. Implicit bias is where you do things and you don't really know why. Mm. Um, and is it from uh, the way you were brought up? Um, like, for example, there's certain foods I don't like. I've never tried them, but I, I'm, I'll say I don't like them. And that's an implicit bias because there's no reason why. It's just been kind of around me or things I've seen. When we're dealing with people, we look at, um, you know, who do we think is likely to commit a crime? And how much of it is actually statistic-based versus how much of it is our bias? And when we look at statistics, are those statistics backed up by having arrested more people from that demographic committing those crimes mm -hmm. than people who are also committing the crimes but don't get arrested? Mm -hmm. So in this program, it was a one-day uh, program where every member of the Toronto Police Service, whether they were civilian to like right up to the chief, had to take this. And we looked at um, a variety of biases, um, whether it was people of color, whether it was a, a gender thing, whether it was youth, 
Um, and again, we only had a day, so it wasn't a lot, but uh, it was really interesting um, conducting the, the the program and facilitating it uh, because you're trying to get discussion with the officers. And of course, if you sit in a room full of, you know, 20, 30 people and you tell them that they have explicit and implicit biases and they have implicit biases against certain people, which is why they're always arresting those people, uh, it can sometimes be a hard sell. Right. But hopefully by the end of the day, if nothing else, we got officers kind of thinking about what they do and why they do it. I think that's a phenomenal start, um, especially when it comes to biases. I, I, would, I would assume the biggest uh, bias is racial, um, that, that, that is taught. Um, how about financial? Financial bias. That's, yeah, right. It, it comes up, I mean, you work in, um, you know, uh, an, an impoverished community. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like, well, of course these people do this. You know, it's like, well, you do the same thing. Right. Right. When we talk about, um, you know, in impoverished communities, in, in um, community housing, you know, and you see people sitting out, you know, on the side, like they're standing on the sidewalk, you know, having drinks and whatever. And it's like, you know, this is terrible. Well, what's, what's any different from, you know, people in middle-class environments uh, on their driveway, having their wine. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely yeah. well, it, nothing. It, or, or even in the backyard, right? It's having, having a yeah. barbecue. Yeah. And the difference is that the other people don't have a backyard. Yeah. Right? So it's if public. You, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, you're an impoverished community and you want to have a beer with your friends. Uh, you go to the beer store, you buy a can of beer and you sit on the park bench. Yeah. Right. Because they don't have a living room to go to. I, th- I think a lot of problems that are addressed as racial, yes, they are racial, right? These racial implicit biases clearly exist. But I think the bigger problem is financial. Like if, if you, why do people commit crime? Mostly because most of the time because they're poor. Yeah. Right? Rich, people yeah. Need, rich people create different types of crime, right? That yes. like, they create more harmful type of crime that they always get away with. So that's a completely <laughs> different type of crime. Middle class people typically don't commit those kind of crimes that it's personal. Like murder, right. mostly murder. <laughs> I would assume yeah. more assault, but the, right? Yeah. But like, then, when it comes to general crimes, <clears throat> poor people commit more crime, not because they're a certain color, it's because they're poor. And then we look at why are people poor? Why are people poor? Right. Exactly. Right. Who is going to be not, poor? And again, not because they're not because of that, not because of that color. Yeah. It's because they're poor. Or, or is it right? Because there are certain opportunities are not made available because they don't have the look of the CEO, you know, um, and. I, I teach at a, a community college and I took some ideas from this for one of my courses. And I, I did a whole thing about like, you know, what does a serial killer look like? Right. You know, white and guy. you know, you know, Typically a white, white guy, me, but look, they look like me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's a white guy. And you know, like, like Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. you know, a very handsome. good looking white guy. Handsome. You know, very handsome. D- just Charis- like you. Charismatic. Right? Oh, thank you. Just like you. Yeah. Right. So, Again, right, that whole thing. But when we think of, um, and again, in criminality, it's like, you know, who is a criminal? Well, anyone who has opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or anybody, and, and anybody so be, in need, anybody who needs something. Yeah, right. And so you have to sort of be able to um, be able to go beyond your biases. And we also look at like your biases came from your family of origin mm-hmm. and your neighborhoods and your communities. It's also ingrained in your DNA, right? Biases, biases exist from thousands of years of evolution, which is very, yeah. very hard to just undo. It takes, it, exactly. takes, it takes generations. And yes, you know, the, the progress of the wheel of progress rolls slowly. And I, yes. I, I do think in the past, in that, that progress is speeding up in the past decades. 
But think yeah. where we were 200 years ago. We've made a bunch of progress where we were 2,000 years ago before that. So Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very hard to undo what we genetically know. And I, I know you mentioned in the, on the website on the program, it's like they do teach you it's not your – like sometimes it's not always your fault. You, know, you, don't, you, just, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. So like how, how is it actually taught? Like so who are the people – teaching this and what exactly are their qualified like what makes them qualify to teach on implicit bias well the pro we we purchased the program and then um there are about 20 of us who were trained to be facilitators mm -hmm. and so basically we run through the program that was developed and we did it for a year and it was like crazy busy and exhausting and fun and not so fun sometimes um but the idea is that we're not going to fix anybody and we're not going to get fixed, but it's to raise that awareness and to start those conversations, right? Because there's nothing we're going to teach you in a classroom that's going to change your life. It's what you take away, yeah. right? So are you going to have a conversation with uh, maybe the person you carpooled with, or are you going to go home and talk to your family about it? Or, you're going to go back to the station and say, this is the stupidest course I ever had to go on in my life and then proceed to talk about it and then proceed to talk about why you don't have biases. And in so doing, talk about your biases, yep. right? So it's, <laughs> it's, so it's getting, but it, but it gets the conversation going, yeah. gets people yeah. thinking, right? And it's a, it's a, it's a tool. It, it's not a cure-all. It's just a tool. How do the officers respond to it? Cause I could see some actually taking it in. Like people, some being is brushing it off and being like, oh, this, is, this is fucking stupid, right? Like how, how do yeah, generally, yeah. generally how do officers respond to it? Because I, I really, I really do hope they would, they take it with the grain, they, not grain of salt, they take it open-minded. They go in looking to learn something as an opportunity. Like you don't have to agree, but you have to understand. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, for the most part, I mean, it's really interesting. We found that if we had really interactive classes, which were fun, mm -hmm. um, the uh, evaluations at the end were like, you know, this was okay. You know, time could have been better spent. The classes that we had where the officers sat with their arms crossed, leaning back, completely shut down. It was like pulling teeth. Mm -hmm. The evaluations, they said, this was really great. This is something we should have had uh, years ago. It's like, what? Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, like stupid's always going to be stupid. Haters always going to hate. Gonna stupid. Right. And so there's going to be those people that are just going to think this is a big waste of my time, energy and everything. But I think for the most part, um, I, I like, how do you measure success? It's like a generational thing, right? Like, has it changed? Like, you know, the next day, did they go back and they were like, you know, completely fair and impartial in their policing? I doubt it. Um, but if it made a bit of a shift, then it was a success. Yeah. If you, if you inch a little bit forward, here and there. Exactly. That, that can make a big difference. Well, exactly. I, I think, Desmond, I think that's phenomenal. Um, I'm glad you're involved in this program, and I hope it continues to evolve. And I think it really could make a difference whether the cops want it to or not. Because, hey, they might implicitly – they might say it doesn't make a difference, but in the back of their minds, implicitly they might. Subconsciously they might. But let's, well, that's it. They, they built on to it from that. Uh, they did that program for one year, then built on, and they continue to build every year. Uh, and looking at, you know, like different things like, like poverty, like mental health, like gender, like orientation, you know, gender expression, all kinds of stuff. Things that are really important uh, within the communities in Toronto. Excellent. So you had 30 years of service 
as a cop. Do you miss it? I do. You do? I do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I just, um, I mean, I don't miss getting up at, you know, stupid o'clock to get to work. <laughs> I don't miss being up, you know, night after night after night. I, I like sleeping in my, my little bed on a regular basis, but I, I really, I miss the camaraderie and I really miss being a part of something bigger. Meaning. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know exactly what you mean, but Hey, you found new meaning in your, in your post-retirement life. You are an author. You, yes. you, you, so you say you work in fiction, but you've got the, you got the stories. So to me, it's just like, you're telling personal, you're telling personal stories, but they're fiction. You're telling true stories that are now fake. So please, un, un, untake yeah. that from me. I'm yeah. assuming it's just, you know, you have these stories, but you can't actually use their names for legal reasons because it was a, an actual case, right? Am I close? Well, it kind of, well, you know, like you take a story and then you just kind of, like I just kind of spin it a little mm. bit here, a little bit there. So anybody intimately involved with the story might recognize it, but if you weren't, it's a good story. Right. And, and what's interesting is that in the whole, um, you know, selling of the series, I had, um, um, agents and publishers say like this, this doesn't really happen. This doesn't ring true. And it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. It's like, you have no idea. <laughs> but I mean, it's just, a, it's like to each their own, but, um, yeah. So, so could, like, could you drop like a based on a true story label on it? Cause Hey, sometimes that sells extra tickets. Um, yes and no, except I, I don't know. Cause I, I wonder if then you, you're kind of held to a higher standard, right? you know? Um, and one of the things I like about writing as crime fiction is my intention is not to re-victimize anybody who is involved mm. the first time around. Mm. You know, and I mean, I know we all love true crime and yeah. I, I you know, but well, I, what, what, do you, what, I, what do you mean by re-victimizing? Like glorifying the crime? Like can dig, dig, well, dig, dig, for, dig deeper into there for me. Well, like for family members and people who knew the the deceased. I mean, imagine you know, what you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to watch something on Netflix. I'm all set. I'm, I'm good to go. You flip something on. This looks great. Then you realize it's, you know, a story of somebody you know, mm. right? And it just kind of changes the whole dynamics. Whereas this way, I hope I've massaged it enough that, um, like, unless, like I say, unless you had intimate knowledge of that particular crime, you wouldn't know that it was that particular crime. Right. Yeah, we had, like okay, so like, I understand. So we had we had we had that issue with like the Dahmer series that came out this past fall, yeah. and the victims and the families were like the families of the victims were not happy. Which no. hey, if I were them, I would also be not happy because the show was phenomenal. Is a terrible word to use, but the way it was created and the art, the art was phenomenal in terms of how it was made and acted and written and portrayed. Yeah. But obviously the crimes themselves, despicable, and Jeffrey Dahmer is a fucking serial killer. So, well, and, and I mean, this, so is, this I, it's, is the thing. It's, it's, like you're, it's, it's you're treating with a little more respect, which I well, which I respect. Well, yeah, I mean, and for the families, this never right. ends. Of course. Right? And now, course. you know, with the internet, it's, it's there all the time, right? And and I I can only imagine as a, as a family member, you just hope that no one is going to pick this up and redo it, mm -hmm. right? Because I, how many years later are we still – you know, still talking about Ted Bundy and, and, you know, his family members are still out there. Mm -hmm. Right. And as well as, as well as your victim. So is this, is this, 
no interest in a memoir because this this is kind of a, in my opinion a creative way to kind of do a memoir of 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 the works of your life and works pretty much. Well, it's interesting because it started out as the one book uh, that's actually coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, Death Before Coffee. I actually wrote that while I was still uh, an active police officer. Okay. And it started out as my thinking I was going to retire. And, um, you know, policing is one of those things where you have a lot of niche information of stuff. And, I didn't want to become, you know, like that sort of guy who sits in the corner mumbling to himself or telling some, you know, poor bastard who's sitting beside him, you know, let me tell you about this time and that time. Um, So now I just do it to the rest, to the whole world. Um, But um, I I wanted to create characters that were more interesting than me Um, because a little more captivating, uh, uh, in the um, Mike O'Shea series, which is the police procedural, um, Mike O'Shea is 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 a little more interesting than me, not much, uh, but a little more interesting than me. And you can you can take poetic license. Uh, and each each book, uh, he gets beaten to near death. Uh, in actuality, I don't think a, a human being could take that kind of a beating, uh, sort of year after year, and and still be functional. Um, but in a in a crime fiction book, you can. Course, yeah. Well, okay. So, let's let's wrap it up and go home. Tell people where they can find it, where they can buy the books, and um, when the next the actual release date. The next one, this this podcast is going to be aired on April twelfth, I believe. Uh, oh, great! So, hopefully, I can drop it just in time for your book. Yeah, this one airs April twelfth. So, when does the book actually drop, and where can people buy it? Uh, the uh, the first book, ten thirty three assist PC, has already dropped, and it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, bookstores are selling it, and uh, the second one, which is Death Before Coffee, is going to be dropped uh, second or third week of April. So right about the time that you're doing your podcast. Awesome. I checked that on Amazon. If you're in the states, it's seventeen bucks paperback, six dollars on Kindle. So please. Go check out the book. I'm I'm very curious. Just speaking to you for this past hour, I think you are a very intelligent man. I think you're very thorough in your thoughts. I think you're very nice. I think you're very kind. So I'm excited to pick up the book and kind of see what your writing style and hopefully it translates to as good as you well as a podcast. Man, you should if you have these stories, you just don't have the time to tell them, or you have like shorter stories, man, you should have a podcast. You already got the mic. <laughs> you're pretty good at it, man. I, I know the same I'm not the same I run a company that does podcasting, but I think there's a billion true crime podcasts out there. I think You'd be very good on a podcast, even though you've done it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And let me know what you think of the book. I will. I will. I'm actually very excited to pick it up. Um, I haven't read a book in a long time, but I'll get it. I'll I'll do it. I'll do it just for you. It's a quick read. Before we go, the final question of the Talking Fantastic podcast always goes to the guest. So I'm going to open the floor. You can ask me a question, anything you want. If I caught you off guard, you can always plead the fifth. That means you don't have to, you don't mean to ask a question. Sorry, plead the fifth is the U.S. U.S. That's okay. I watch a lot of American TV. It's funny. How many people here in Canada think they can plead the fifth? Yeah. It's like, no, that's, that's an American thing. That's an American you, thing. You, you, you can't do that. Um, what What is the best part about doing your podcast? Oh, what do you man. like the most? I got to tell you, um, I was thinking about this as we were recording. Um, my favorite part is just understanding different perspectives. Right, let's let's go back to our Trudeau conversation and then in the truckers. You have a very different perspective than I do. You have a very different background than I do. Now, I don't agree with you. That's fine. But I understand That's where fine. I understand where you're coming from. And I respect where you're coming from. 
And those are the kind of conversations I like to have and conversations I want to have more of. So I'm going to praise you very highly in this podcast. We did it twice. <laughs> we did it with that, and we did it with the um, earlier in the conversation with um, – I don't even remember now. because uh, The defunding. The defunding, right, and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the money, where the money comes from, right? And you gave me a new perspective. I can take that perspective. When I'm having a conversation in real life, whether it's my girlfriend or my friends and gaming and Discord, I can take that perspective. Again, I don't have to agree with you. I, but I need to yeah, understand no, need to. where you are coming from. So that's the biggest takeaway I get from podcasting. I understand people's perspectives. Now, it's one thing to listen to a podcast and get that. It's another thing to talk with someone and actually do it and put it out there to the world. Like I, I, I tell people in this podcast, if you make me go, ooh, that's interesting, I want to talk to you. And I'm going to have you on the podcast eventually. If you can grab my attention and make me learn something. I'll figure it out. And, you know, this is, and I do it as a courtesy. This is actually, I think, consider my podcast a service to you, meaning I give you all of the content I create. And you can take it and share it with whoever you want. If you don't find value in it, don't use it. You know, that's on you, man. <laughs> that's on you. Cool. I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff to use. If you use it, amazing. If you don't, I've done all I can do. So the biggest, benefit, the biggest benefit is just talking to people, everyday people. I never would have met you otherwise. You know, one of my good friends actually lives outside of Canada. Um, through podcasting, and he's one of my best friends in the entire world. I don't even never met him in person. I've never given him a hug, but right, that is cool. That's really cool. It's really cool. It's it's the connections and the honest discussions, and right, that's that's the best part. It's it's true freedom of expression. It really is. Yes, yeah, that's so. great. Good answer, Will. Good thank answer. You. Thank you. I, I had it, I had it rehearsed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Desmond, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you for the extra time. We're running a close on ninety minutes here. Um, I could talk to you for hours, but man, I'm hungry. I gotta go eat. Something. All right, man. So my go my, eat, go my, eat. My, uh, my policy is once a quarter. So in three months, I'll bring you back. If you got a new book coming out, we'll have a chat and we'll talk. Next week, I am speaking with a member, an old friend of mine, and a member of my fraternity because I was in Greek life, believe it or not, Taps on Phi, and he is now running the alumni club for Hofstra University's uh, Tap Tap chapter. So we're gonna talk to him about. My days in college, a lot of fun things with the fraternity and what he wants to do with the alumni club and the state of Greek life in America. So we talk about policing this week, Greek life next week. My name is Will Tarashuk. This has been a Talk with Tarashuk podcast. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, email me, will at APSpodcast.com. It's APSpodcast.com. Desmond is a, is a testament to say that I will answer it if you got a good pitch. But I'll see you next week with a brand new guest. And until then, y'all take care.